0: On this edition of Making Contact, we'll explore the aftermath of the Ghost Ship fire and the fight to preserve live work spaces, and we'll discuss the San Pablo fire that displaced at least 100 residents, many of whom are now living on the street. That's next on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. It has been seven months since the fire at the Ghost Ship warehouse in East Oakland that killed 36 people. On Friday, December 2nd, at about 11.30 p.m., a night of electronic music was just beginning when a fire broke out, engulfing the building in a matter of minutes and trapping partygoers inside the difficult-to-navigate building. According to the New York Times, there was only one exit, and it was down a winding makeshift staircase. The building that housed the ghost ship was originally built in 1930, before people moved in residentially in 2013. The space had been empty for years. And while housing prices in the Bay Area have pushed more people into unpermitted rentals, locals have been living in the industrial spaces since long before the current housing crisis. The early 1970s saw a wave of artists moving into unused spaces in San Francisco's Soma and Mission districts. And while almost all of them are gone, some of these old-time collectives have become part of the city's current artist establishment. Here's Jeremy Dallmus with the report.
1: Instead of ringing a doorbell, Craig Baldwin told me to stomp on the metal plate in the sidewalk in front of his space on Valencia Street.
2: I'm probably the last straggling, you know, guy in the, uh, the mission. I'm the leaseholder here, by the way.
1: Baldwin's lived here at Artist Television Access since they moved in in 1987. They're a small theater and event space that focuses on film. Baldwin himself is a well-known experimental filmmaker, and he keeps his film archives in the basement. But before moving in, he lived at the iconic Project One.
2: Like a four-story building, five, you count the basement. There were 70, 78, 79 people in there, probably more at one point.
1: According to local historians, Project One was the first community of young artists who lived in an old industrial space in San Francisco. Before 1971, those spaces weren't available because they were still filled with industry. Large-scale manufacturing hadn't started to leave the city in earnest yet. Dozens of artists moved into this 84,000-square-foot old candy factory at 10th and Harrison in Soma. Baldwin describes it as a multi-story vertical village with projects all over the building.
2: Like stained glass or filmmaking or silkscreen printing or music studio. And uh, in the first floor, there was actually a computer lab, one of the very earliest here. Project
1: one was for people who needed a large space, a studio. But their work couldn't fit into a normal house, and affordability was also crucial.
2: You see, the idea is if you lived in an apartment and then you had a studio (laughs) somewhere else uh, across town, you'd be paying two rents.
1: They would have been paying an average of around $400 a person to live and work there, adjusted for inflation. He says he could never have become an established filmmaker without that physical space. The economics for artists are the same now.
2: The cost of of paying for the gallery space is uh, made up for, see, by the, the renters.
1: Hosting music performances, films and art shows provided a venue for lesser known talents and at the same time helped residents pay the rent. But these spaces rarely last. Project One got evicted in the early 80s, and almost every other industrial art space in San Francisco is long gone. But against the odds, there is one tenacious space in the Mission District that has survived for decades. This space is still there, and they're still relevant. This is a recording of Kronos Quartet performing there in 2010.
2: Our toe is beautiful. If you go over there, they succeeded, you understand, for, for whatever reason.
1: Project Artaud started in 1971, right after Project One. They're in an old American can company factory that takes up a whole city block. They began with practically nothing.
3: But there was no walls. So it was unbelievable. It was just like open into this 40,000 square foot. It's amazing. It was a cathedral.
1: Nicole Sawaya used to manage the theater here. She moved into Project Arto in 1978 and has lived here ever since. Like Craig Baldwin, she says that having both arts and living spaces in the same building was economically essential. There are still performances today, and dozens of artists still live here. They tend to be older, like Sawaya. So here's
3: my studio. When I got this studio, I sandblasted, because this was all painted, to take it down to the brick. Just
1: like Project One, and like contemporary live-in industrial spaces, when they first got in here, it was an empty shell, and they had to build everything themselves.
3: And then it was like screw guns and sheetrock all through the morning, noon, and night. For the authorities,
1: though, this was unprecedented. Sawaya says the city had never heard of having events in the same place where people lived. They condemned the building almost immediately. And this would have been the end of the line in other spaces. But Project Artaud had an ace up their sleeve, an advantage that few artist spaces had then or now. They own the building.
3: And we wouldn't be here if back in 1971, those very, very smart people hadn't said, you know, forget about leasing it, let's buy it.
1: The city didn't make people stop living there, and Artaud worked with them slowly over the years to write new codes and get the building into compliance with existing regulations. It was a back and forth, beginning with sprinklers, fire doors, and exit signs.
3: But the city was pretty amazing back then. It was very elastic. We were in conversation with them for 10 years.
1: By 1984, the whole building was legal, and people have lived there legally ever since. And it's not just Project Arto and artist television access. Southern Exposure, The Lab, and Counterpulse are all pillars in the local arts establishment, and they all grew out of spaces of questionable legality in the 70s and 80s. But as it gets more difficult to use spaces like these, it gets harder to see what will seed the next generation of arts organizations in the Bay Area. I'm Jeremy Dalmas.
0: In the Bay Area, there's a long history of artists creating community in mixed spaces. But immediately following the national media attention on the ghost ship tragedy that killed 36 people, many artists living in Bay Area warehouses came under scrutiny for their alternative living spaces and worried they could lose their homes. Carmen Brito was one of them. She lived at the ghost ship and lost everything in the fire. She says she was the first person to call 911 that night and thinks she may have been the first person to see the fire.
4: My name is Carmen Brito and I was a resident of the ghost ship. I moved in January 1st of 2016. Started a new year in a new place. But before that it was just it was just so difficult trying to find anywhere to live. I ended up bouncing around the East Bay for a while. You know, most of us are just grateful to find a room anywhere you know i was going through craigslist and the ad was just well one like the photos were just stunning but it was just sort of a call for artists and weirdos and writers and people who still have to work and do art and people kind of living on the fringe and you know it just felt like like and this is what i've been looking for like this feels like a home and a temple and an adventure all at the same time. I don't know. It's just that, that kind of thing where it's like, oh, hey, do you want to do that cool art thing? Do it. It's like, oh, you like doing graffiti? You yeah, paint something on the back wall. You know, whatever you're into, do it. I think the the first time the power went out was in, for me, it was like the, the first month I moved in, the power went out, but we had maybe like one power outage for the whole month of January and you know and then it, they just sort of like got slowly like more and more frequent like in hindsight um I think the power went out something like like two or three times the week before the fire. I'd been at work all day and I'd gotten home you know maybe 6 30 or 7 and I see Derek and Micah loading up their kids in their van. And I was like, oh, there's an event tonight. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I had, I had planned on going out. I had like three things I should have gone out to go do that night. And I ended up just kind of falling asleep. So I, I woke up to my studio filled with smoke and, and I could hear the music going and, and I could see this sort of orange glow and just like my perception of it was that it was a fire, but a fire like the size of a microwave or something like that, like big, but like not horrible. And so I put on my shoes and my coat and didn't really think much about it. I I guess I just sort of thought like, okay, we're we're gonna put it out and I'll be outside for a bit and then I'll come back. Like, I guess when I was leaving, I thought I was gonna come back and I step outside of my studio and I look and I see an entire wall on fire. And I was already dizzy and disoriented and I just headed for the front door. I got outside and somehow I had my phone with me and I started calling 911. If I'm the first person to see the fire and it maybe takes me Maybe a minute to get to the front door, another minute to call, and then less than three minutes for the fire department to get there. I mean, you know that, that window of opportunity to have gone out of the building was less than five minutes. I think I watched it, I think I watched it burn for about an hour um, before you know a couple of my friends came to get me. And they were kind of like, do you do you want to stay? Do you want to go? Do you do you want us to take you away from here? And I was kind of like, I think I think I need you to take me away because I'm just going to sit here, you know, kind of tried to sleep, drink, drank some whis- whiskey, trying to sleep. And I think I blacked out for a little bit, like lost consciousness for a little bit, but I didn't sleep. And I woke up to one of the other people from the warehouse calling to make sure that I had been OK because she wasn't sure if I had made it out or not. You know, I just remember, like, the, the Saturday after, like, waking up and, like, seeing an image of my home on Fox News. And I was like, is this really happening? Like, did this really happen? You know, most of the residents spent the day at, you know, Saturday at the Red Cross. And they gave us these emergency debit cards with, like, 500 bucks on it to go buy clothes. And, yeah, because I, w- I was still wearing the clothes that I had made it out of the building with. So I was able to stay, uh, stay at a friend's house in Emeryville for uh, a couple of weeks after the fire. Um, I never slept for more than a couple of hours at a time. And, yeah, I mean, it's like I the last time I went to sleep comfortably, I woke up and my house was on fire. And, and I just realized, like, I need I need a home now. I need another home. And... I got really lucky that a friend of mine who I've known for like the last 10 years from my hometown had a room open up in a house that he's been living in for the last five years in Oakland. You know, I had wanted to stay, like I had wanted to move into another warehouse, but with all of the attention of everything going on, I don't, uh, I, I wasn't exactly hearing back from people in warehouses and, and I don't blame them. I, I really don't, um... It was just kind of, like, a little weird to feel like, oh, and I'm, like, 86 from warehouses now, (laughs) like, you know, I'd rather live somewhere with, with that sort of space and that creative energy, but, you know, I was one of the first people to find permanent housing again, and quite a few of the other residents have just had to leave town because there's just nowhere to afford up here. About six of them have relocated to Los Angeles, um there's a couple still sort of hanging around the bay area and you know around here it's just even even warehouse spaces are getting expensive at this point i think if if people start leaving they're not going to come back they're just going to find a different city that's more affordable and i don't know i feel like this this is a point in, in the history of Oakland and its artistic community of like, it, it, it either gets better or it disappears. And I, and I honestly don't know which way it's going to go.
0: That's Carmen Brito, a former resident of the ghost ship. Events like the dance party thrown on the night of the ghost ship fire used to be a regular occurrence all over Oakland, but they have virtually died out because venues fear drawing attention to themselves. Since December, the city has ramped up inspections. The Oakland Police Department started requiring officers to report all unpermitted events. But many who have run event spaces say that if the city wants to regulate them, it will only push events further underground and may lead to more unsafe spaces. Jeremy Dolmas digs into what it takes to get an event permit in Oakland.
1: Back in July of 2010, Aja
0: Archuleta played this show at 21
1: Grand, just months before the space was shut down by the city. Archuleta was one of the survivors of the ghost ship fire. He had been scheduled to play later that evening. And this performance at 21 Grand was part of the Mission Creek Music Festival, organized by fire victim Kiyomi Tanue. My name is Sarah Lockhart. I
0: was one of the founders and people who ran... The Artspace 21 Grand in Oakland from the year 2000 to the year 2010.
1: 21 Grand was a founding member of the Art Memory Gallery Walk. Walk Art says that they were the first alternative art space in Uptown. Their bread and butter was music, but they also have visual art, dance, readings, and film screenings. At their height in 2008, they were hosting events every couple days.
0: The need was there. It's like we could have filled every single night of the week, but... We weren't making money. Like We needed to work jobs.
1: After seven years of events, one night while packing up, they were approached by the police.
0: And they just sort of came in, took a look, and are like, if we catch you doing this again, we're going to shut you down. And I was like, do I take this seriously? And then we're like, well, what would we need to do?
1: The fire didn't create this problem, but it did intensify it. And like Liverick spaces, event spaces have also been hit with inspections and eviction notices in recent months. Where are we right now?
3: Yeah, we're in the front part of Kilombo Community Center.
1: Dell helps run Kilombo. They're a radical social center that focuses on black and brown communities in West Oakland. They have a bookstore, a huge garden with chickens, and their doors are open for Domino's games since the city closed nearby St. Andrew's Park.
3: And then we have this room, but it's our uh, healing space. We have a really large group of people who do massage and acupuncture and uh, Reiki and, you know, yoga, everything.
1: There really isn't any other space like this. They're different from 21 Grand, but they are beginning to deal with some of the same issues. Two weeks after Ghost Ship, Quilombo failed a fire inspection after passing them for years.
3: On the piece of paper that they gave us, uh, it just said that we are not permitted to have uh, public gatherings.
1: She says she believes their property manager, who had already tried to evict them before, called in the inspection on the property himself that manager didn't respond to numerous calls for comment but dell says he showed up with the fire inspector and afterwards told quilombo that their lease was void because of the failed inspection
3: we came under you know to the conclusion landlords are were snitching on spaces that they knew weren't up to code because they were negligent
1: this is hard to verify complaints are anonymous So it's unclear who called in an inspection and why they did it. At worst, the system can be abused. At best, it leads to suspicion. People need to be able to trust that the safety inspections really are for their safety. And part of the Emergency Tenant Protection Ordinance, which is slowly being reviewed by the city, would solve this by requiring complaint filers to leave contact information.
0: I do think that there is a certain amount of pressure that people believe that they need to prove now after the fire that they're being tough. Which is understandable.
1: There was just a fire. The fire department also didn't respond to calls for comment, so we don't know if they are actually getting tougher. The city is right now walking a tightrope, balancing their responsibility to keep spaces up to code, dealing with a housing crisis, and avoiding lawsuits from the fire. But people in underground spaces are also walking a tightrope of their own, trying to recover from a tragedy while fighting to keep their community together. Everyone is trying to figure out how to handle this unprecedented tragedy. and in a city that is in the middle of a real identity crisis and is also known for doing things outside the system, this fire feels like a watershed event. This is Jeremy Dalmas.
0: The city is slowly considering the Oakland Tenant Protection Ordinance, but it could be months before a decision is made. Until then, warehouse dwellers are in fear of eviction and displacement from the live, work, and community spaces they've created. Across town in West Oakland, five miles from the ghost ship, former residents of 2551 San Pablo Ave experienced a devastating fire that killed four people and left more than 100 displaced. The irony is that it happened a little more than three months after the Ghost Ship fire, and although city officials may have learned a lot from the Ghost Ship, residents of the West Oakland building believe the city wasn't fully prepared to deal with another fire-based tragedy that would leave a great number of people without homes. I wanted to find out what happened in the aftermath, so I went to the scene of the fire to speak with former tenants
5: that's my apartment right there well i guess the fire started right here so up there look just i'm talking about everything. you know did nothing make that nothing and man it's crazy that to do up under me though of all people who would think you feel me a a candle on a styrofoam cup allegedly i don't know but i lost everything out besides my life up in there but this guy made it up out of there
0: that's Tremaine trey baker we're standing in front of what he used to call home. The building is boarded up now and surrounded by a metal fence. In the early morning of March 27th, a fatal four-alarm fire killed four people and rendered many others homeless. For many of the former residents, this transitional housing was a second chance to start over again and create community.
5: See, this is a building for place for people that used to live in the streets, like some have some mental issues, some have drugs problems. This was actually like a residential, community-based place, this hiked, housed a lot of people, just kept a lot of people off the streets. You know what I mean, and uh, I know I was thankful for it, you know what I mean?
0: Since the fire, with no money and no support, Trey is back to living on the streets, which is a bit surprising considering that each household under the city's code enforcement relocation program should have been allotted 6,500 to help with relocation. Jonah Strauss, the executive director of the Oakland Warehouse Coalition, explains.
6: The Code Enforcement Relocation Program is, is its a section of Oakland Municipal Code, I believe it's Section 15, that basically um, dictates what happens after uh, a code enforcement action, i.e. a red tag after a fire. A red tag says you can't live or work in the building or do anything until um, the uh, the effects of the fire are mitigated. And so part of Section 15 of the code is a mandate that the Owner of a building is required to pay out a certain amount per tenant, depending on what the living situation was, you know, number of bedrooms, number of residents, et cetera, uh, after a fire. And so there's some guidelines around the amount of time in which that needs to happen. But oftentimes, because after a fire, an owner is mostly just concerned with getting money out of their insurance company, um, the, uh, it, it falls into the lap of the city of Oakland to requisition those funds from the owner. Um, and then give it to the tenants, but it actually happens in reverse. And so the way that it happens in a de facto sense is there is a code enforcement relocation program fund. Uh, And so that that money starts around $6,500 for a studio and goes up around, I forget, $12,000 range.
0: Jonah believes that the city of Oakland was responsive to the needs of the residents at first, but later dropped the ball on the disbursement of funds.
6: The city of Oakland actually did a pretty good job of coming down to uh, the West Oakland Youth Center and understanding what the situation was. Um, you had uh, a high-level uh, assistant city administrator. You had the head of housing down there. The mayor herself came down there and sort of made an a- attempt to talk to folks. Um, and so there there was this show of support, but uh, the way that the Code Enforcement Relocation Program funds were managed afterwards um was sort of a mess. Uh, There was an over-reliance, my understanding is, there was an over-reliance on the Red Cross list rather than simply talking to the community and and just really establishing who actually lived there at the time of fire. And from my records, and this is incomplete, so I think the number will raise, but there's definitely at least 15 people who did not receive their Code Enforcement Relocation Program funds uh, in any way, shape, or form. And the story of how Um, those funds were not delivered actually is rather frightening. And then the end result of it was that they didn't keep accepting applications. They didn't keep doing their due diligence and determining whether or not people lived in the building. Rather, what they did was they just stopped accepting applications. I heard a story about somebody's application getting torn up because the woman didn't like the way that his case was being presented. I mean, this, this is like... Again, it comes back to this endemic racism and uh, class warfare, where you have um, people who are put in a position where they they don't necessarily know how to advocate for themselves, and there's nothing, no, there's nobody to advocate for them.
0: I spoke with Alex Perry, a former resident and house manager at the San Pablo building. He's currently living in a motel with his wife and children. His wife received relocation funds, but Alex didn't, even though they lived in different apartments. Alex says the money that his wife received is barely enough to keep
7: them from being homeless. My apartment is 311, but my wife was in 318 with both of the kids. And uh, I don't know if it was, if that's how it go or what, but they gave her uh, relocation funds, and I guess they put us together. So I guess what they gave her was supposed to cover my stuff, but... I don't see how. I mean, uh, uh, I believe I probably had, I know God do things for a reason and I, uh, I'm just, you know, uh, accepting it as we go. But uh, at the present moment, we, we was told that we was going to be based uh, on a few lists or whatever to find living. But the cost of living and just the way everything is in the Bay Area right now is, I guess, bad or, or maybe the people even just told us that just to get us out the way. I don't know. But uh at first, we was at the shelter. Uh, then we went to motel rooms. And, and in, the, in the beginning, they was paying for the motel rooms. But as of lately, like the last month and a half, two months, the relocation money that my wife got been going for us to have a place to stay. So we've been motel, 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 you know, just trying to wait it out. We then went you know, to a few different little places and signed some paperwork for you know, housing here, there, and everywhere, but we, we ain't heard nothing else yet, so.
0: This perfect storm of skyrocketing rents, shrinking public benefits for the poor, and fewer landlords accepting Section 8 housing vouchers is pushing longtime Bay Area natives like Alex and his family into dire situations. With the recent Oakland fires causing displacement and bringing attention to the housing prices, all eyes are on Oakland elected officials for solutions. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KLW and Jeremy Dalmas. If you're still trying to wrap your head around warehouse living spaces, or if you have questions about the lasting effects of the ghost ship and San Pablo fires, reach out to us at Making Contact or share this episode with friends and talk about it. Just visit our webpage where you can download this episode and past shows. You can also subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter at radioproject.org. Lisa Rubman is our executive director. Producers include Anita Johnson, Marie Chat, Monica Lopez, and R.J. Lazada. Audience engagement and web director Sabine Blazen, development associate Miraiti Kolsker, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.